Welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. If you like what you hear today, please rate and review kindly. This show is a series of conversations with educators and learners to try and deconstruct some of the stereotypes around education. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit my Instagram page at EducatingLaura. Hello, and thank you so much for being here with me today. I know that it is Friday and I'm releasing a conversation, even though I don't usually do that. And there is a good reason. And that's because the VC English exam is fast approaching. And I wanted to get this content out to support VCE students, especially and teachers to an extent. But there is going to be a follow-up conversation for English teachers that I'll release on Monday. So stay tuned for that. But this conversation is one that I have with Ben and he is from the English lab. He is a qualified English teacher. He has worked as head of faculty for English, head of curriculum, and he now has his own project called the English Lab. And he provides training for teachers, resources for students and leadership and curriculum consulting type services. So so I'll put his links in the show notes to check him out because he really is a wealth of knowledge. He has done many years as a VCAR assessor for English and also marks and provides feedback for schools for their practice English exams as well. Now, before I get to the episode, I wanted to let you know what's happened in my life. And that is that I'm actually back at school. So I've been asked to replace a teacher that's required extended leave. And I had two days notice before I was in the classroom and I have year seven and year 10. So in Vic, the year sevens are back in the classroom, which is amazing and wonderful. And I love being in amongst that energy. But the year 10s are still to return, hopefully in another week, which will be wonderful. But it has given me a small taste of what remote learning has been. And for those of you that have done remote learning, my hat goes off to you because it is so challenging to create a class environment to blank squares with muted microphones, with little feedback not knowing technically if the kids are sitting on that screen or not of whether they've just logged in and students I know that this has been really hard and for those of you that have engaged with your teachers that have made the effort during this challenging time I want to say a huge thank you on behalf of teachers everywhere because I had a handful of really gorgeous kids that responded to everything that I said that let me know about technical issues on the first class and it just made the world a difference to me so thank you if you are doing that. The other thing I would like to mention too is my student voice episode that I would love to put out. And if you know nothing about this, I talked about it in my last two episodes. So the blog episode called How to Present in 2020, as well as my conversation with Katie inspired a nervous pre-service. So if you don't know anything about it, feel free to check out the show notes there or listen to the introduction of those two episodes. I have had teachers contact me and say that they are concerned about privacy in regards to releasing student voices and needing permission and all of that. So I completely get it. So in conversation with those teachers, I thought that you would be able to send me through the actual just text from those messages that you get from the kids and I can read them out on the show. So it's completely anonymous. Alternatively, I have actually had parents send me through some of their children's responses So if you're a parent, I should have probably put this out earlier, please feel free to let me know if you have something that you'd like your child to be saying and to offer your child a platform as well. So 
absolutely an amazing thing to do so that we can hear more from the students and how they've been going during this time. Anyway, I'm going to get off and stop chatting to you. Here is Ben from the English Lab, a really important conversation. And VCA English students, this one is for you. Hi, Ben. How are you going? Yeah, well, thank you, Laura. How are you? Really good. I just thought I'd preface this episode with the fact that it's going to be split into two parts. So we're going to do an exam support section for students and then an English teacher support section. So I'd like to start with asking about feedback. So often as English teachers, we give feedback based on our understanding of what we want to see in students' work. And I thought that we'd spend some time giving students a bit more information about what some of that feedback might mean in terms of what they can do. So the first thing I'd like to talk about is if you get too vague on your piece of writing, what should you be doing as a student to fix that? Absolutely. It's uh, it's one that, that probably often uh, comes up. And I think the reason why teachers would be putting down, uh, you know, too vague as, as feedback would be that there's a real need to be direct and to be clear. And obviously with all three pieces that are on the exam are all analytical in nature. And I think sometimes students, whether it's out of a lack of confidence or perhaps nerves or, or feeling like they need to be, you know, elaborating on absolutely everything, there's sometimes that need just to be direct. I guess the main advice with that is to be fully aware of exactly what's expected with each section and making sure that there are those sentences that are punching through and answering the question, responding to the question, which is, you know, other feedback that students get a lot of the time. But just being aware, I think, of exactly what's expected and making sure that the balance isn't overtaken by, you know, sort of retelling the story or, you know, talking about in the argument analysis, all about the argument and things like that, but really getting directly to that analysis and making sure that that's a habit that, you know, obviously not every single sentence can be analytical. We need to have, you know, fluent and clear writing and to be able to set up analysis, but, um, you know, making sure that that balance doesn't get overdone where we're sort of setting up argument and talking about it and going around and around rather than getting directly to that analysis you know, cut through sentences that are really uh, being direct and clear and analytical and, and responding to the question or getting to that comparison or getting to that, you know, think, act, feel and, and how that's going to impact on the audience when it comes to section C. So being aware of those essentials and getting directly to them, I think is the, uh, the best way to, to attack that if you're seeing too vague one of the uh, things coming up on your feedback. Yeah. So you've already mentioned the idea of storytelling and we see this a bit where either the students will set up a quote or set up the analysis and then move on or they'll explain the story of what's happened in the text and we're waiting for the analysis and it doesn't come so if they do get things like stop storytelling what are they doing and what should they be doing yeah and i, I think you really hit the nail on the head there laura when you said about you know, they set up the analysis, but then it doesn't come. And so I think that really, you know, complements well what I was saying before about the making sure that you're aware of what the essential content is when it comes to section A, section B, section C. And so the the big thing there, particularly with storytelling, is something that with, with former classes of mine and now with students that I work with in the role that I'm in at the moment, it's really about something that I often come back to with them is is really stressing to them that the assessor has read the text as well. Yes. And, and sometimes, <laughs> you know, I'm, I make jokes about that and, and I often want to come across, you know, you don't want to come across as, as patronising when you're saying that to them, but you do really need to make that point quite often 
you know, students will have these very long passages of, you know, oh, in the 1950s, it was like this, and this is why that, and you're thinking, that's all great context, but yeah. I already know that. Yeah. So I think that the best advice for that is to, you should be taking an approach into the SAC or to the exam with that idea of, okay, the person reading this is a fellow expert on this text. And if I've been studying mm -hmm. this text for, you know, seven or eight months, I'm an expert on it too. So this is a this is a conversation between two experts where I'm showing off all these things I know. So I don't need to be explaining it. Yeah. And an analogy that I used to use uh, with, with students that I taught was that if I went round to my parents' house and I was going to be talking about my brother, I wouldn't give them all the details about who he is. You know, I wouldn't be saying, you know, that guy, he's a little bit shorter than me. He grew up down the hall. He's, I don't know, he's got curly hair. I would just yeah. say his name. And from the moment I said his name, they know who I'm talking about. And it's the same with a text. So rather than mm. it having to be, you know, there's this point midway through the text where the author mentions and it's happened after this and all these things. It can be as simple as saying, you know, yes. her move towards New York or whatever it was. And as soon as you've said that, the assessor knows exactly what you're talking about. And so you can get into the, the, the real stuff, the, the analysis, because that's what's important. And I think that comes down to students feeling like they need to show that they've read or, or viewed the text or whatever it might be and realising that, well, actually... Mm -hmm to show how well you know the text. It's more about the ideas that the author or the director or whoever it might be is getting across, not about how well you know the events, that the events and the quotes and all those things are there yes. just to refer to. So refer to them and then get out and get to the analysis because that's what's most important. Yeah. And I think you're right. Just understanding what it is behind each assessment. So what is it that we actually want to see out of it? And this is where kids, I suppose, need to be more invested in the learning and go into the back end of some of these tasks and have a look at what's actually going to be assessed, what's on the study design, what are the assessors looking for. So you do need to know that. And I'm sure teachers present it to you, but often I think there's a disconnect yeah, because you think, yeah. oh, that's teacher stuff. You do need to know in order to actually address everything properly. Absolutely. And I think I think a lot of times students can get that from reading really good quality sample work as well. And so I'm often saying mm. to students, you know, don't be afraid to ask your teacher, you know, do, do you have any copies of, you know, students who did well in previous years or, or high-end sample work? And really looking at that sort of sentence by sentence and noticing how that top-end work is not wasting any time. It's quite ruthless in just, you know, it refers to something small about the text and then its focus is always on analysis, not on explaining the text and giving a whole bunch of, um, you know, information that's already known, that's a given by the time that, uh, you know, the assessor's reading it. I think a really good activity that I used to do, and I used to use a lot of sample work as well when I was teaching, is to actually get the kids to colour code the mm. content. So if you have a topic sentences in pink, you have evidence in green, you have analysis in yellow, the really top-end essays will primarily be yellow and a bit of green yeah. and a tiny bit of pink. And seeing it set out like that and seeing visually how much analysis is, is in a really top-end essay is quite powerful mm. if you are visual. Yeah, the visual side of it is is a really important one. I know that uh, that was something I used to do with argument analysis quite a bit was I'd, I'd say, like, I want you to be ruthless with, with what we're about to do here and I only want you to highlight mm. where you have directly made a statement about how the language has led the audience to think or act or feel and it could be a real eye-opener for students because they'd be going through, you know, nearly a page of work and they're thinking, oh, <laughs> there's only a half sentence mm -hmm. here and maybe a half sentence there. And I'm, and it's about saying to them, right, so if that's the main thing that I'm going on to, to grade your work and that's what I'm going to reward your work for and you're only giving me 
two or three little flashes of it in an entire page of writing. We need to get that balance right. And it's the same with the comparative as well. And and I really don't uh, envy students because I, I've, I've written a lot of comparative paragraphs across across the pairs. And, and with schools that I've worked with this year in particular, I often say to students, I'm like, I've been in your shoes. I've been trying to write these paragraphs. And sometimes I can get out of control. I, you know, they're, they're a page long, yeah. you know, and it's not an easy task to work with two texts in particular. And so it becomes, I think, even more important with the comparative where it's about you've just got to touch on the evidence. It's not a competition about, okay, the topic that I've been given is this topic. I've got to show how much I know or how many examples I can think of from either text. It's about the comparison about what those texts say about that topic and, and how they might say it differently or yeah. how they differ in what they're saying. And, and again, with the highlighters, it can be a great thing for students to do, particularly at this time of year. You know, it really comes about your teacher is going to be able to help you a lot, but it's got to be about self-assessment as well. Yeah. I think the students that get the most success from this time of year, and when I say success, I don't mean, oh, you know, the students that get over 40 or anything like that, but the students who get the most out of themselves with wherever they may be are the ones who will come to me and say, oh, mm. you know, I think I'm storytelling too much with this, or oh, I really tried to be more direct here, or I tried this. And so they're really self-evaluating. And that goes so far at this time, I think, rather than someone who just sort of shows up and says, oh, I wrote something, can you read it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that student who's got that focus towards, okay, I'm trying to do this, I'm trying to do that. And, you know, in essence, it really is about, like you said, with the highlighters, being able to highlight where you've been directly comparative or directly analytical or wherever it might be, and actually looking at it and thinking, well, wow, I actually spent a lot of time getting to that point. I probably could cut cut through that. And, and, and think about sentences that might not even be needed, you know, like, yes. and that can be sometimes quite a harsh thing to say about your own writing, but you think, well, actually go through it and think, if I took this sentence out, would it make a huge difference? And sometimes that can be a really good sign when students think, oh, there's probably three, mm. four, five sentences I've included in here that wouldn't make much of a difference uh, if I took them out. Yeah. And I think the next piece of feedback I wanted to talk about was the idea of being succinct and concise. If you've said the same thing three times in different ways, it's not getting you any more information out there. It's not getting you any more marks. It's not giving your assessor any more insight into how you are relating to this text, how you know the text. And so it's great to have all of this writing. So you have a paragraph that looks like there's a lot in it, but when you actually distill it down, there's not much. So if you're getting terms like be concise, be succinct. It means really narrow down what it is you want to say. And the other thing I would like to say about that too is trying to use vocab that gets across the best point you can. So if you're saying something in mm. several words, is there one word that would do that perfectly Absolutely. and would showcase I, what I you think, need so um, you can move on? Practicing those kind of terms as well. like, And, and it doesn't have to be you know, really over the top, you know, fantastic vocabulary that not many people have heard of. A lot of the time, it's just about arming yourself with really great sentence starters or sentence structures, you know, like I used to talk about the word through uh, in saying things like, you know, through this, Hitchcock is able to or Mandel or whoever the author or director is. But it's that idea of giving students those words that they can begin a sentence with that's going to trigger analysis, you know. So if you've if you've just brought up a point and you start that next yeah. sentence with through this or you've just brought up some evidence, it means that it's transitioning you from, okay, I've just brought up some evidence through this and you insert the author's name, okay, now I'm going to be getting to that analysis. What are they saying? And, and that's the really important thing. And so having those sort of words like that ready to go or 
things like thus or, or therefore is that really great way of saying, okay, I've just brought up all these things, thus, okay, here I go, I'm going to get to that point, I'm, I'm leading towards, all right, this is now what I'm going to say about it. And I think sometimes when students can get really used to using those types of words, it can really be that great trigger. It's that way of going, okay, I've talked about a few things, I've brought them up, and now I'm going to get to what's important. Thus, therefore, through this, you know, whilst one text does this, the other does that, whatever it might be, those words that always sort of keep them on track with saying, okay, I've got to get to that point and got to get to that analysis. Mm. What about if you get embed your quote better or the quote here is impacting fluency. How can you embed a quote in a way that supports the fluency in the writing in your paragraph? It's a uh, it's a really tough one, I think, because it really comes down to to practice, and and I, it's so often that I want to be able to give you know that that d- different sort of advice and say, oh, actually, there's this neat little trick, but but in so often it's about you've really just got to practice it, and you've got to make mistakes. The the only way you're going to get better at those things is by trying them, and and I think students can have the most success again from wherever they're they're starting from with being okay with stuffing it up in practice sacks and with pieces that they bring into you and saying, okay, you've been using that word microcosm or something that you're trying to teach us. I'm still not 100% sure if I get it, but I've tried it here. Like, can you tell me if it's right? And that student is the one that they're going to try it once and they're either going to get it right or if they get it wrong and they've brought it to me, I can say, well, no, you haven't quite nailed it, but this is how we use it and it becomes a part of it. And I think it's the same with, with embedding quotes. Quite often, I think another thing that can help is realizing that quite often the best quotes are one or two words, you know, and and that's not a, yeah, that's not a a rule to say, okay, they must be one or two words. But in so many cases, the best quotes are those ones that just refer quickly to it in those one or two or three words, those short phrases, because it works with what we were talking about before. You don't need to give an entire long sentence as if the person hasn't, you know, read the text. You know, the moment you use those two or three key words, the person reading goes, oh, yeah, great, they've referred to that. So it's that being able to jump in and jump out. And I guess the other part as well is, A lot of times when I've put up practice pieces, practice paragraphs and things like that, I have a lot of students that ask me questions such as, why did you put in those square brackets? And that's where you sort of change the, uh, yeah, changing the context of the quote. Yeah. And and manipulating the quote so that it makes sense within the context of your sentence. And that can just be, again, be something to practice uh, in working with that so that it just becomes a natural part of your language. And the easier way to do that is to be working with those shorter Mm. quotes, as opposed to trying to embed a really long quote that's going to basically be a sentence of itself. We used to do this kind of cool activity where we would do a quote off. And what we'd do, it was when I was at school and we would have a school Facebook group. And so the kids would get on and we would create stories amongst the cohort in which we would create a narrative. And in that we had to, every single comment had to include and embed perfectly a quote from the text we were studying. And so it's a really fun, it's fun because the kids ultimately were trying, and at the time I think we were doing uh, All About Eve which is so cutting yep. and so catty and so everyone was just insulting each other's in each other in this <laughs> 1950s language so it made them embed the quotes quickly so i think those little fun activities in which you're not sitting alone writing is important to understand that you can be doing in the lead up to your exam as well yeah most definitely realizing that whilst practicing is important that doesn't always mean sitting down for one hour and writing a full essay all the time Uh, there are other ways of of going about it and those sort of activities can be really really helpful 
Yeah. I was going to ask you too, I get this often. What is your thought about memorizing passages, essays, having something in your back pocket ready to go into the exam with? What do you think about that? I think in terms of memorizing an entire paragraph or anything like that is I would call it energy wasted in terms of trying to memorize an entire paragraph because you're gambling with the idea that oh, if you're thinking that there's an entire paragraph that you could write that will suit the question that's going to be on that exam, I think that's a huge gamble and, and I, I would be very, very skeptical as to whether it's going to pay off. So what I would be working with instead of memorizing would be that idea of being comfortable with sentence structures and things like that. And and I think what's really important with that is a little bit like those um, vocabulary terms that we talked about before. It's not about walking in and thinking, okay, my first paragraph is going to start with this word and the third sentence is going to start with through and the fifth sentence is going to start with thus or anything like that, Mm -hmm. but rather being comfortable with structures that work well for you and sentences that you can fall back on. And I think that's so much more valuable than trying to memorize entire passages or things like that and it's something that any year 12 class I've had or or even this year when I've been working with students on sort of a weekly basis I like to go in there with things that I've written and they say things to me they're like you always put it that way and I say well yeah I do and and that's okay and and the reason that I can write these things quickly is because I have these comfortable sentence starters and these comfortable phrases that I know I'm going to use uh, and, and that I that I come back to. And it's not that I write every essay the same way or there's some perfect recipe to it, but there is language that helps me be direct and helps me be analytical or helps me be comparative. And so I'm going to fall back on that. And, and that more practice that we can get with that, the, uh, the better that that, that that will work. And, and I know that there's students that I've worked with when they'll come in quite often and they can always find a way to get a certain quote in for, for whatever reason, yeah. whatever that question is, they, yeah. they find that. And I'm always a big, uh, big believer of that. You, you know, you could stare at a quote wall for, for as long as you like. And I know that a lot of students, it gives them a bit of comfort and so on with doing that. But I think there's that step that needs to be taken where it's, you know, it's not about, oh, I know 200 quotes or anything like that. It's about, well, I've been really comfortable with being able to embed all these different quotes. And you're going to learn those quotes by having them in your working memory, by using them in practice pieces and and using them as often as you can, instead of it being, you know, all I know, you know, a hundred quotes, and hopefully there'll be a question where I can use them. It's, It's more about being able to rather than memorise passages or things like that, have the sentence structures and so on that you've worked on with your teacher that will work in any essay that you can come back to. Yeah. I've actually seen a lot, especially in my tutoring work, where students don't want to start because they've been given an exemplar piece of work and they look at it and they think, I could never write like that. And so they get so intimidated by the language to use and the sophistication of it that they think, well, I'm not even going to bother because there's no way I could replicate something like that. And my comment is always speak from a place that you understand, use language that you understand and find your voice as a writer. Don't try and emulate somebody else. And I think that sometimes they don't believe me because they're seeing these really impressive pieces of work and they think, but that's what they want. And my feeling is, no, we want to see what you know. We want to showcase your ability We want you to be comfortable enough that you're not tripping over language that is not natural for you in your own vocabulary. Mm. And I'm wondering if you have anything that you'd like to add to that as well. 
I think what you've said there, particularly with with students feeling intimidated, is is a really pertinent point. In that, I, I like like to think that the way that we should be teaching these things with writing is to expose students to you know vocabulary that they might not be a hundred percent sure of or things like that, but encouraging them to practice with it. And and like you said, sometimes when they they read these terms and they automatically go, oh well you're a good writer, you know, because you're an English teacher yeah. or, the, you know, so-and-so in the front row, she's a good writer and, and I'm not. And realising that writing, just like with learning the uh, the text and so on, that, it, that it's a skill, that just because you're in your 13th year of school, you know, it's not like, well, you walked in the door as a good or a bad writer and that's it. We can't make any growth this year. You know, little things become big things with the more that they practice. But also the idea of them being genuine and true to how they write and their voice is so important. And I think mm-hmm. I realised certain things that I did early on as an English teacher as well, and I realise why students sometimes feel this way, but I think students sometimes have this idea that there's a certain answer out there, that there's this recipe about, okay, this is how an, an essay must be written. And of course, there is a structure to a text response or a comparative essay, and there are structures and so on. But you know, I'd often say to students, you know, if I'd taught them some sort of acronym like, um, you know, what, how, why for argument analysis or TEA or TEEL and all those types of acronyms and those structures, I'd often point out to students if they were getting stressed out about it, I'd say, it doesn't say that in the study design. That's a, that's a teaching yeah. strategy. And yes. you're not being assessed on your ability. The assessor isn't going, oh, okay, good. I can tick off the T and now I can, oh, have they done the E and the A? And have they gone for an E and an L and all these things? Yes. That's a teaching strategy that was there. And, and it's that old sort of idea of you need to know the rules to break them. So you're, you're given those structures, but you don't have to be hemmed in by them. And if you can write more naturally by doing it in another way, so long as you have a sense of structure to the piece, it doesn't have to be that structure. And so yes. often when I'm working with Year 12 teachers, it's, it's, it's hard because um, as part of my job, you know, I, I, I put forward resources and, and programs and training and stuff for teachers, but I'm always really careful to say to them, this is a way of doing it, not the way. And yeah. and I think students need to be hearing that all the time that, you know, and that even comes down to the way that they analyse texts. I think, you know, they, they read study guides and study guides are great, but sometimes they'll go, oh, okay, so which theme is it? And you think, well, just because the study design, a study guide, I should say, had four different themes or ideas that explored, that doesn't mean that that's the four ideas that this text is yeah. about. Yes. Yeah, it's about your interpretation of it. And and it's very good for you to, to have read a study guide. It's very good for you to have listened to your teacher. But the teacher and the study guide are resources there to help you in your understanding. They are not the gold standard of knowledge that says, right, whatever your teacher says, that's how you must think about this. Yes. You know, we, we've got a job as teachers to make sure that we're making sure that students feel that way, but it can be a difficult job because sometimes it's easy to fall back on a formula and so on and, and in order to teach those things. But I think we students need to be really aware of that. They're not falling short of some perfect standard that the teacher or something is putting out there, that they've got to have their own individual interpretation and understanding and their own individual voice because... If you're trying to be someone else with the way that you write and if you're trying to use language that you don't fully understand or think that you're being formal when you're not fully in control of it, 
it's going to stand out and yeah. you can be much clearer and much more authentic in your writing by writing with what you're comfortable with. Yeah. But making sure that, you know, you're still on the lookout to improve your writing, but making sure that you realise that it's little steps that, that get you towards that more fluent writing and then reading those pieces and, and to not be intimidated of looking, well, I'm here and that's there and I can never reach it. Well, what are the little steps that you can do to improve whilst maintaining an authentic sort of you know, feeling to your writing? Yeah, I agree. And I think what you've said too that I think students don't understand is some of the most exciting work for me to read is something I've never thought of. Yeah. Something I've never said in class, something that I've never considered. And I'm a biology teacher too, so I understand that for some students having that answer is really important and to be able to tick that off and know that they're doing the right thing is really validating and offers them that real sense of safety. And I understand. But sometimes taking a risk, putting something out there, the amount of times that I've been like, tick, 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 amazing. And the kid's like, oh, I wasn't really sure if I should put this in. You've never mentioned it. I said, that's why it's so amazing (laughs) because I haven't considered it and you're opening my brain and you're making me learn. And, you know, by often by the third time I would teach a text, half of the things that I would be explaining weren't from a study design that weren't from a study guide. They were from conversations I'd had with the students because they improved my understanding so much in their own interpretation. So I do think students need to trust themselves a lot more and have confidence that what they see and what they feel about a text and what they believe is important is important. And, yeah, maybe you might need some clarification and some work on how to develop the analysis of that. But if you see something, especially I would say this too, especially in media analysis, People are like, oh, what's important? What stands out for you? Mm. When you're reading it, you're the reader. You are potentially the target audience. So what is it in that media analysis, in that argument that you're drawn to? If you're drawn to it, why are you drawn to it? And what was your catch-all for analysis for media? Oh, but think, act, feel. Yeah, yeah so mine was think, feel, do. Yeah. So there yeah. you go. So similar. Yeah. You know, so if you're drawn to something in an analysis or, sorry, into in an argument, what does it encourage you to think, feel, or do? Why are you looking at that and, and connecting with it. and I, But I think the kids are like, but what's right? What's the best way of seeing this? It's like, well, you're the target audience. You're the reader. Yeah, yeah, you right. tell me. And I think that comes across so often when, yeah, you'll ask for an interpretation and, and students will start, and before they've even said it, they'll say, I, I don't think this is right or I'm not sure if this is right or and you think, I, and I feel like saying, no, it is. If that's how you felt when you read it, and that you have evidence to fall back on that when you read that, you felt that, well, actually, the idea that I got was this. And I think that's so important in any VCE English classroom in that the idea that you need to say, it's not a bad thing. In fact, it should be celebrated when the person next to you goes, oh, really? That's how you saw it? I thought it was this. And far too often, students can get to that point and they have that idea, well, oh, well, who's wrong? <laughs> Neither of you. Yeah. <laughs> it's, and and yeah. that idea of what's right. And, th- and that comes across so often where students need to have that idea that, well, <laughs> there isn't that right answer. There are, there are strategies that have been put forward, but they are teaching strategies. And when it comes to things like argument analysis, students go, oh, well, what was the tone? Well, the tone, whatever the tone was, was was how you read it and, and the evidence that you could fall yeah. back upon. And all of you are going to have different responses to that. And that's that's okay. And not only is it okay, it's a good thing. And that we don't want this very formulaic way of saying, you know, the writer uses an tone 
you know, at, at, or yeah. however it might be with that. It's about, well, how did it sound to you? Or how do you think they were arguing? And that, that whole idea of there not being a, um, you know, a, a wrong answer, so long as there's evidence to support it, I think is said a lot, but I'm not sure how much students are really understanding that it's about their personal interpretation and that they, they need to have that courage to be able to say, oh, well, this is how I see it. This is how I feel about it. This is what I got from it. And that the truly authentic answers are quite often the best ones, you know, when, when you're reading that. And, yep. and what you said before, I've done that with plays that I've taught and so on, and, and it's the, one of the best moments when you can look at a kid and say, I've taught this play for four years in a row and I have never noticed that, and that that's awesome. Yes. Or, and, and you do. You find yourself the next year teaching that class with something that a, that a student brought to you the year before. And that's mm-hmm. not only a really, really great moment as a teacher, but it's, I think, something that, that students need to understand, that your teacher doesn't know everything about the text, not because right. they're not good at reading it, but because they brought their understanding. As someone who is older than you, as someone who has had a different life experience, they saw it that way. And then you've come along and said, oh, actually, I reckon it's like that. And you think, oh, I'd never considered it that way. And and there is that that true interpretation that comes from that. And, and that's really what they need to be aiming for. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to talk about in regards to feedback is if you get answer the whole question or you get something like don't cherry pick the question. And this is, I will say, often in examiner's reports, that yeah. especially the terms don't cherry pick. So what would you say to kids that are getting that kind of feedback? It's really, really important, particularly with the exam and I, I, with making sure that students respond to the whole question and that I guess there's so many different ways of, of going about it, but sometimes I often would think that students sort of zip through the question, like they, they read it, they go, oh, okay, it said heroes. Okay, I'm going to write an essay about heroes. And then they yeah. don't come back to the question, but what did it ask about heroes or what did it, or did it say heroes and villains or whatever it might have been, you know, did you just see that keyword and go for it? Or did you really think about yep. what was being asked about it and what was there? And on top of that as well, I think sometimes students can be asking, well, how can you answer the question any better than, than anyone else if you've given evidence that supports that, that, that sort of idea? And I think it's that idea of sometimes students feeling that they need to prove the question is right. And so they can take a, a pretty basic sort of approach to it by you know, the, the questions put up some sort of proposition and the student goes, yep, it happened here, it happened with her and it happened with him. And so that they're going to be my three paragraphs. And so that question doesn't really go anywhere. It's just a case of, yep, yeah, the, the question's right. Can't do anything more with it and I'll prove to you why it's right. And that's going to get students into that sort of middle range and an okay re- uh, understanding of it. But to get real depth to a response, first of all, the question, your, your response needs to be a response to the question. And so- yeah. I think a little bit like the highlighters that we talked before, something that, that students can do is highlight the question, then highlight the first and last sentence of, of all of your body paragraphs. And when you read the question and then you read those set first and last sentences of the paragraph, is there that link there? Is there an actual answer to yeah. the question? Or is it just giving evidence and this is evidence and this is evidence? Because, you know, I think that idea of the, a journey and a destination, you want to have throughout your essay, that destination is, okay, in response to this question, ultimately, this is what I believe in response to that question. My paragraphs are going to help me to get to there. And throughout that, you might challenge the question a little bit. You might 
open up the idea. Mm -hmm. You might bring in other ideas of the text in order to get to your ultimate contention. And that's what a successful essay is, the one that engages fully with the question and explores all the elements and the dynamics of the idea or the element of the question, whatever it might have been that's been brought up, that gets to that ultimate response. That that word ultimately is one of my favourites as well when it comes to triggering that sort of idea and, and, you know, to get to the point where I'd have sort of 20 students writing me essays at this time of year and every single one of them would end their introduction with ultimately because it was this sort of habit of saying, okay, I need you to make sure that you've got a clear response, that you're not just there to go, okay, the question said this keyword, I'm going to write three paragraphs where that keyword is in this text and that it's proved. It's that idea of being able to explore all of it, bring in other ideas of the text, talk about what the author was trying to do, how they've you know structured their text in order to do it and come to some sort of response to it. Yeah. And I think too that there's one word that they see and it seems to have like a big shiny light around it and they said, this is what it's about. This is the crux of the essay. Yeah, but it could be in relation to another mm. word or it could be in relation to the instructions. So you might have a character's name and you feel like you've got to talk about that character but what's the theme? Is there a how? Mm. Is there a why? Is there a does? Is there a more important, less important? You know, so you really need to look at it in relation to every element. And my my advice was often to select your keywords and go in small. So what does each keyword tell me? Rather than get the one keyword and trying to look at the essay question as a whole, look at each single word give a little bit of information about each single word and then bring it back together and it will give you a more un- a better understanding of how it works together because it's not just one term. Yeah, it's definitely. all of it. So the other thing I wanted to ask you too is the idea of that instruction in an essay prompt. So we often get things like discuss, do you agree, to what extent do you agree? Sometimes you just get a, a statement and it stops there. So those elements are important in the way that you shape your essay. So what would you say to kids about those kind of instructional terms? Yeah, it's something that is so vitally important, particularly for for the exam. And it's something that I I actually, um, I had a lot of questions. I had this great email from a teacher that I've been working with asking me about what advice will you give to students about, you know, the difference between discuss or to what extent do you agree and all those types of things. And then I had a few uh, students ask me questions. So I ended up actually um, making a YouTube video about it because I thought students need to be be seeing this. And so it's, it's asking about the, um, you know, the six types of questions you might be asked in, in the exam. And my main advice with it is a little bit like what you were saying, to be, make sure that you don't ignore the instruction that's there. I can remember a few years ago when I was marking the exam and it, it was something, the text was burial rights. And it said something like burial rights is about life, but it is also about death, discuss. And students, in a lot of cases, picked one or the other. They wrote about life or they wrote about death. But they didn't actually. That's cherry picking, guys. That's what cherry picking is. Exactly. Yeah. So they hadn't actually considered that actually, no, it wasn't just, as you said, these big shining lights around one word. It was about saying, well, yes, it's about life, but it's also about death. So you need to discuss them together. Mm. Or, you know, it might have been a question like, uh, so and so is the true hero of the text. Do you agree? 
And sometimes students would disagree with it and they'd say, oh, well, this is about heroes. So they'd completely ignore that person. And, and you can't just dismiss parts of the question that you don't like. If it says, you know, no. uh, Lisa is the true hero of this text, do you agree? You can't say, well, no, I don't think it's Lisa. I think it's this person and this person. If that character's name has been brought up in that question, well, the response has to revolve around that character. And that doesn't mean that you can't disagree. But if you are going to disagree, your disagreement has to come in response to the fact of why it is not that person. Yes. You know, it can't just be, oh, actually, no, I don't think it's so I'm going to write something completely different. We can't just go off on, on those tangents. So you, you do need to think about exactly what the question is asking. And and as you said before, with the word how, uh, that's another thing that, that I've made sure that I'm really clear with students about in that if it says, how does this text, you know, explore the idea of or how does the author, sorry, how does the author put forward the idea of you know, how time shifts or something like that? That question is not saying, talk to me about time shifts. It's asking how. So you, your discussion and your response to that must include an understanding and analysis of the construction of the text because it's inherent right there in the question. It has said, how has this author done it? So, yeah, it, and that can be something that you can see really clearly uh, after years of, you know, of assessing work and things like that. You can see that student that has sort of breezed past that question when you're, you're reading their second paragraph and you're thinking, they haven't really considered exactly what this question was asking. They, they saw a topic and they just went, yeah, I know about that. Here I go. Here's three paragraphs about it. They didn't consider that it was actually a full question that needed to be fully uh, responded to and resolved. Yeah. For me as an assessor, whenever I assess work, the importance of having a really stable and steady introduction helps set me up. And I think mm. psychologically kids need to understand this. When I read the introduction by the end of it, I have some understanding of where I'm going, right? Mm. I suppose it's like, you know, you're about to get in the car and you've got a map, right? You haven't actually taken the journey yet, but you have a map, you have an understanding of where you're headed and they don't have to be overly convoluted or anything like that. It's just a grounding exercise for the mm. assessor. I think by the time they get to the end of that introduction, they're like, oh, okay, and you already feel as though, are oh, they going to answer the question because mm. they're talking about this, 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 this is where we're headed. I'm now looking forward to how they're going to show me all of this. But often if the introduction doesn't match with the essay, it's really off-putting or mm. you can be on the back foot because you read the introduction, you go, oh, they're not going to answer this very well. And then you're having to shift your mind because actually the essay is better than the intro. And so I think it is really important to understand that it does need to be quite cohesive. Absolutely. And I think few things that students can do to ensure that they're not sort of falling into that trap is to challenge themselves to not write a list in their introduction where it's like, mm -hmm. okay, I've got three paragraphs. So my introduction sort of introduces the text, you know, in so-and-so's novel, this and that, this idea is explored one sentence, second sentence, third sentence. So that idea of like, it's explored through this, it's explored through that, and it's explored through this person. That's, you know, kids really need to understand that that's, that's a very base level sort of response to a question in saying, okay, you've given me an idea, one, two, three, here I go. And so that can be a real challenge because then since I, well, how do I write it without just listing the ideas? Well, it's about being able mm -hmm. to say, well, what are you saying in response to it? What are the ideas that are helping you respond to the question, not the evidence? Oh, so, yeah. yeah, this person does it, that person does it. That idea of, okay, but what are the ideas in response to it? And then having those words up your sleeve, like, however, ultimately, the author or whatever it might be, having that idea of finishing off that introduction with, this is what I'm going to say. I've just touched on the things that are going to help me to get there, like that idea of the map, but ultimately, 
this is what it's going to be about. And this is this is where I'm heading yes. with this essay. Yes. I'll link in the show notes that video as well. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. And all that. So if students want to access that, I'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, fantastic. The other thing I wanted to ask is how important is a quote in an essay prompt? It's a funny one. Again, it comes back a little bit to what we were saying about rules and, and students will say, oh, I don't think I actually use the quote in the question, uh, the quote from the question in my essay. And I think sometimes they have this idea that their teacher or the assessor is going to look at it like there's a tick box that says, did the student use that quote and, and things like that. And they get too hung up on that idea. There's no way that an assessor is going to read an essay and say, oh, that was excellent. There was great thought. They responded to the question. They had a great yeah. understanding of construction. Oh, but they didn't use a quote. So I'm going to strike three marks off. It just doesn't happen yes. in that way. I think the yeah. best advice how does the quote put a, a shade on the question? When I say put a shade on it, it really comes back to that idea of interpretation. Like when you read the quote, what do you think of? What What do you think? You know, when, when you read the quote, what ideas come to your mind? Like as you read it, do you think, oh, yeah, that's that really symbolises or that really represents the hatred uh, that exists in this town or oh, that really uh, represents that ugly side of uh, of this country or whatever that's explored in this text or that shows oh that's really all about violence i've gone with very negative terms you know <laughs> um, <laughs> or that you know that really shows you know yeah a life affirming message or, or something like that i should end with a positive but um you know that idea of all right when i read that quote what does that bring out in me How, what is it that i thought when i read that quote in relation to the text and take that understanding then to the question that's there after it and think, okay, how does that, you know, shape what the question is asking? And then, you know, how can I use it? And in terms of practical advice, because I know uh, students can get a bit frustrated when we give those sort of long convoluted answers and they're like, yeah, but should I use it or not? Absolutely. But you do not have to wedge the complete quote into a paragraph, nor do you have to use it twice or anything like that. I'd be aiming to use elements of it, maybe use two two words here or two of the other words there or things like that. However, it's going to work for you. But don't think that if a quote is there in the question that it's this case of, okay, yeah, we're we're testing you here, you must include it. It's more to guide your thinking. And it's there more as a help of an assistance than it is as a hindrance of something that's there to um, trip you up or anything like that. It's there to give you further thinking and and further context around what the question might be asking. What I realised I wanted to talk to you about before was when we were talking about the evidence and you were saying that often people will just list evidence that they want to include my strategy was always if you take a step back from that evidence, what's the idea that this evidence is embodying? And I would love to see mm. the idea as a topic sentence rather than a character's name necessarily, not to say that that's wrong, but I think also yeah. it's nice to mix it up. If you can too, to me, idea-based topic sentences are always more sophisticated and they always allow for much more depth of discussion because you are not shackled to one character you can showcase it in more than one way if you feel confident that you've got a whole paragraph on on one character I'm not saying that it's wrong but I think the idea is such a better way of structuring the paragraph and to give focus to a paragraph I'm wondering Mm. what advice you'd like to give kids about things like that Uh, your word shackled (laughs) is is just 200% 200% accurate. I, that brought back memories of me standing in front of my class like pretending I was in yeah. a straitjacket. It's that idea of it being like if you start with a character or evidence as your topic sentence, you have cornered yourself into this is what I'm going to talk about. 
Whereas if you have the more broad idea, the interpretation, there are multiple forms of evidence that can back that up. There are multiple characters. And on top of that, it's not just going to be that idea of proving the question like I talked about before with, yeah, this character does it, so therefore it's true. You could say that this is also explored through and bring up that second character. You can expand on your idea by actually showing that, well, this character shows this side of this idea then the author makes a slightly different message when they when we consider this person's experience or this character's experience and that's really getting again to that idea of that it's not an answer you're you're not going to prove the text right or wrong or show me that it's irrefutable that this is what this text is about that you can bring in that other side of an idea by saying yeah whilst you know this idea is explored through these characters and these things we've also got to consider that she says this in her novel so Maybe she's also saying that, and that's not only allowed, yeah. it's yeah. encouraged. It's it's more than okay. That's that real depth of knowledge. So if you start with those uh, general ideas, but I think one thing, you know, I sort of taught VC English for, for a decade before having a break, and I think one thing, a bit of a light bulb moment, uh, and I think it's important for, for students and kids to know that, you know, your teachers are learning these things mm. as well. And I'd always taught essay planning with like putting a question on the board, and then I'd go, right, my first idea is going to be this. And I remember a student about three or four years going to me, well, how'd you come up yeah. with that? <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, well, and it was a great question. And it stumped me because I was like, well, I, I did. And she was like, well, what, like, it's just magic. Like, how do we do that? It's the how, yeah. And I was thinking, yeah, and I was thinking, what? yeah, that, that really, it was a really great question. And it was really great feedback for me as a teacher that essentially the way I was teaching was to say to them, all right, there's a question on the board, you know, just come up with three ideas like I did. as if it was magic and so I used to say to them I don't want evidence but I actually changed that a bit to say all right the first thing think of all the evidence you can in response to that question but like what you said before and this is what reminded me of it rather than going okay that evidence is going to be what I'm going to say what is that evidence telling us and that's where your ideas are going to come from so when you look at the question you think oh I can think of that character that quote comes to mind oh the fact that she's done that and structured it in that way I can think of all these things that I know I'm going to use in my response Go there first, because that's a natural thing where our minds are going to go to. We're going to think of evidence. We're going to think of ideas. And that's where kids go straight to. But then being trained to have that step of, okay, now that I've thought about all these things, what are the ideas that are being presented through that that evidence? And that's where our topic sentences are going to be able to come from. So it's really interesting. There's two things I want to say about that. The first thing I want to say is hear that students, you need to have autonomy over your own learning. If you're looking at something and you're looking at a way a teacher's presenting something and it is not resonating with you and it's not you're not getting to the place that you you can actually formulate your essay or feel confident, ask the question and pull your teacher Mm. up. I mean, don't be aggressive and rude. That's not the point. (laughs) But we are all learning and we want to make the experience as supportive for you as we possibly can. And I think often kids think that they can't ask or I must Mm. really that I should understand that. No. If we've presented something to you in a way that you don't understand or you don't learn, give us that feedback so we can shift it for you. I had a similar situation in which a student said to me, like I would I would um, have the essay question on the board and I would naturally, I'm a brainstormer, so I'm a, I always have mm. mind maps and things like that. So it was, And she said to me, she said, when I'm watching you do it, the steps make sense. But when I go in, I forget it all. So I created yeah. the acronym for her literally because she's like, I need something Ketsy. So it was keywords, evidence, topic sentences, contention. And I said, if you have those sort of th- four things, by the time you're ready to write a piece, 
in that order, it made sense to me because you get your keywords. As I said, you don't just go for one, you get all of them. And then you look at them all in isolation. You work out what evidence you've got for each or for, you know, for each particular key term. And that way you're addressing every key term. And then as you say, what evidence have you got? What works together? What can you group? And then based on the groupings, you then step out of it. What I did, all of these things link together. And that creates a topic sentence. And then from there, you've got everything. And I think most people think, I have to know what I believe first. Well, often once you've gone through that entire exercise, your contention is different yeah. than you thought. Yep. So that's okay. And yeah. on the back of that, I'd also say you don't have to do all of those four steps. If you, in your own mind, can visualize steps one and two, and you only need to write down your topic sentence of contention, do that. Do whatever makes mm. sense for you. There's no right way. But I do think you're right. The analysis of the question before getting to that nitty gritty topic sentences and contention is really helpful. Absolutely. And and particularly with something like planning, I'd, I'd often be saying to kids that it's it's what works for you. You know, I, I'm going to scribble things and, and I know that if I scribble down that note, I know that I can come back and refer it. But there's no way that I could stand in front of 23 kids and say, okay, this is the way to plan because it's how I do it. You know, that, that's what my mind does when I look at a question, but you're going to look at it very differently. And so uh, autonomy is just, yeah, the, the, the spot on word with that about saying, okay, I've got this teacher who's here to guide me, but the teacher's not there to say, this is the way that you must do everything. You know, it's about being able to, to ask those things. And some of the most, you know, teaching's always that very humbling sort of a job, because every time you think you've got it down pat, <laughs> a kid comes along to ask you a question, you think, oh, God, I've been taking that for granted. I hadn't thought about that from their point of view. Yeah. And I remember, you know, it was yeah. a student a few years ago that that said it, and again, said it politely and everything like that, but really just challenged me by saying, yeah, you're telling me to go deeper with a question, or you're telling me to, to show more insight, but how? Like, what does that look like? And I remember that just really opened my eyes to yes. sometimes the feedback I was giving was like, oh, you know, I need you to, to show more thought here. Or I need you to go deeper with the thinking. And and I remember, and that completely changed the way that I taught um, those comparative texts from then on because students are like, well, that's all well and good for you to say, but what does that mean? And so I ended up writing this pyramid of ideas and saying, right, this is what more insightful thought actually yeah. looks like. And I never would have done that if that student had a said, hadn't have said to me, well, you're telling me to be more insightful and that's easy for you to say, but I've got no idea how to do that. So you need to tell me how to do it. And that was some of the best feedback I've gotten and it improved my teaching. Yes. At that point, I'd probably been teaching VC English for six or seven years. So I think students need to know that as well, that I definitely hope that there wouldn't be many teachers yep. out there saying, right, I've been doing this for years. I know everything. You know, each year you get these new things where you think, oh gosh, I could do that better. And, and so, you know, they should be sitting there and, and asking. And as you said, and, and challenging, but not challenging the teacher in a yeah. way, you know, like you said, to be rude or aggressive or anything like that, but to ask those questions that you're allowed to ask to say, sorry, you've, you've told me how to do something, but I still don't get it. And that's quite okay. You know, teachers are going to be okay with that and say, yeah, good. I'm glad you're telling me that because I need that yeah. feedback because what I'm yes. doing didn't work for you there. So let's do it in a way that will work. Yeah, and maybe I'll go yeah. away and think about that and come back because maybe I don't have the answer right now because I'm a human being like everybody else and you've now put to me a question that I really want to support you in yeah. but I actually might need yeah. to have some really important conversations with some of my colleagues because I don't know and I will come back <laughs> and I will support you but continue to ask those questions. It's really important. The last part I'd like to ask on this part of the episode because yep. we'll then move into the second part. We might have a separate recording I think is what are some ways to study for English 
that is not just about writing an essay. Yeah, I think particularly uh, in the lead up to, to the exams, it's it's important that students don't just jump on that treadmill of, right, I'm just going to churn out essay after essay after essay. And so other ways that it can be done is I think the attitude needs to be, what's the skill that I'm working on at the moment? That I'm not just going to be, all right, I've got three essay questions, so I'm going to sit down and write three essays. But rather, to give a direct answer to that question, it could be something like a skeleton plan, which essentially is... It's like writing an essay without having to go forward and write all of it out. It's And so it's saying, okay, the, the skill that I'm working on here is my ability to respond to questions, like we said before. And instead of sitting down and writing an essay in one hour, actually what I'm going to do, I'm still going to study for one hour, but I'm actually going to look at three questions and I'm going to spend 20 minutes on each. And so the skill that I'm going to be working on is looking at the question and then thinking about how I'd respond to it and writing out a pretty thorough plan, knowing that I won't have time to do that in the exam, but at the same time, in that hour, I've responded to three questions and I've got all these ideas running through my head And because the skill I was working on was A, responding to questions, B, thinking of evidence, C, planning a really thorough response and checking myself against the question and making sure that I'm responding to the question. And the skill that I'm not working on that day is writing really fluent, cohesive paragraphs. And that's okay. I can do that another day when I'm writing that full full essay. So that idea of planning, I think students can also, uh, there's something that I call the, the three and three technique. And it's that idea of spending three minutes looking at a question, mentally planning it. You're going to walk in there and have 15 minutes of reading time and you have to work on that skill of, okay, how do I use that 15 minutes to the best of my ability? So actually work on the skill of looking at a question for three minutes and in your head planning, okay, yeah, this is what I'd say and all those types of things. And when I'm allowed to pick up my pen, this is what I'm going to write. And and actually planning that and actually, you know, trying out, you know, some, some reading time. And when I do that with students in my class, I'd say, right, we're going to do a 15 minute reading time practice. And they'd laugh at me. They'd be thinking, what do you mean? Yeah, how are we going to practice oh, that's reading? That's a good idea, actually. Like as as a class activity, I've never done that before. Yeah, and so it, it and it really is that idea of like, well, you're walking into that exam, and for the first fifteen minutes, you're not allowed to touch your pen. So why would we always practice by having a pen and a highlighter and planning for as long as we want when that's not going to be the conditions you have to execute this in? So yeah, the reason I'd call it the three and three was that I'd put three minutes uh, on my phone or on a stopwatch on a laptop, and I'd say right no pens, three minutes, just mentally plan it. And then when that alarm went off, okay, you got three minutes now to write a really short plan. Uh, and then we change it for argument analysis where I'd say, right, I'll give you nine minutes to read this. And at the end of it, I'll give you three minutes to annotate, you know, the, the best parts that you're going to do, because, you know, you've got to, you've got to practice how you're going to go out there and, and do it. And sometimes with argument analysis and things like that, students could come with these really well highlighted, you know, like these pieces of art. <laughs> and you think, yeah, but are you going to be able to do that in the exam? Are you going to have 15 minutes to do that? Well, no, you're not. So how are you going to practice, you know, those, those sort of things? So, yeah, trying to break it down, and I think that's also more motivating. Looking at your desk and thinking, oh, I can't be bothered today. Like, am I really going to sit down and write a piece for an hour? I can't do it. It's that idea of, oh, I can't get started because it's an hour there in front of me. Whereas looking and going, okay, I've got those three questions from my teacher 
I'm going to spend six minutes on each of them. Okay, yeah, I can sit down for 18 minutes yeah. and working on those those other skills and, and making sure that you've got that focus for it, not just thinking that, that writing yeah. for an hour all the time is going to be the, the, uh, the only thing to do. And I think honouring the ebbs and flows of your energy is really important. So I'm such a night owl. I'm from 7.30, that's when my energy peaks again and I would often do this with teaching is I'd come home from school and I'd sort of veg out on the couch and yeah. do very little seven o'clock I'd then start my marking and do all of that so be really clear about where your energy is especially when you're studying and I think too as you say don't set out to complete a task that you feel is so onerous for you at that time so write an intro if you want to do 20 minutes of timed writing you don't have to or 10 minutes of time writing you don't have to do the whole hour the other thing I would say too is if you want to Sometimes yeah. I think kids feel bad if they're not doing anything, but they don't have the brain capacity to do something really intellectual. So you could, you know, you could put like quotes on some study cards or something like that. And then another day you've got all these study cards. You can then mm. arrange them as to which ones work together. And then you can just talk to someone about why you've grouped those quotes together. What ideas could you bring from those quotes and have discussions? You mm. know, we you could do a quote off, you know, get your – Facebook or WhatsApp group together and, and just do a, a massive quote off between your friends. Absolutely. It doesn't always have to be formal writing. All of those are really rich activities that will get you into the text and get your understanding growing and developing without yeah, and if, creating a prison for yourself. If you've got those physical study. cards as well, thinking about, well, you can use them for your planning as well. You can look at an essay question and think, okay, which of these yeah. would help me respond to this question? And and I think I, I had some really good advice a few years ago where someone was saying, study or don't. And it was that idea of when you're studying, you're studying, but when you're not, you're far away from it. And I think sometimes we can get caught in that half, oh yeah, I'm going to look at some quotes while I'm watching TV. And I was like, well, that's not going to work. And A, you're not going to relax and B, you're not <laughs> yeah. going to study. So it's just adding stress and adding anxiety to, oh, I should have been doing proper study. You know? So you've got to use your relaxation time. I'm in the middle, uh, as we speak, of, of marking a whole lot of practice exams for schools. And I woke up yesterday and I was trying to get into them. I was telling myself, no, I have to do this. I have to get into it. I went and had a nap and, and that's taken a long time for me to get to that stage. And as there's that self-awareness about I knew at that point that I could have spent the next six hours at my desk plugging through and really pushing myself. And at the end of it, I wouldn't have done anywhere near as much work as what I eventually did. And then mm. it was much more effective for me to go, this is horrible. I went and laid down, played on my phone for 10 minutes, fell asleep, got up half an hour later and did far more work that day by mm -hmm. giving up that 40 minutes to have that half hour nap than what I would have had I have just kept pushing myself through and, and, and doing those things. So, yeah, trying to be smarter. But if I'm being really honest, that took me a long time to get to that sort of awareness of knowing that I can try to push myself all the time, but I know when there's times where I need to go for a walk. I need yeah. to go and completely switch off from the work that I'm doing and in order for me to come back refreshed. And yeah, it's much better to to spend two or three hours of really good quality time doing something when you've had two or three hours away from it than it is to yeah. sort of try and slug at it for six hours. I just think that, you know, yeah, study or don't, I think is a really, really important sort of attitude to take. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for all your advice that you're giving to the students and hopefully teachers can get a little bit out of this too. So where can people find you? Because you do have a fair bit of YouTube stuff out there and supportive material. So where can people find all of that great stuff? Yeah, thanks, Laura. So um, our YouTube channel uh, is probably the best place for, for students. So that can be found uh, by searching for the English Lab. It's a really good idea to put something, if you type English Lab VCE, you, you'll, you'll find, uh, find it there because otherwise... 
plenty of things out there about, you know, British Labradors and things like that. So that's the name <laughs> of my little project, the, uh, yeah. the English Lab. So yeah, we've got a, a channel on on YouTube and, and students have been finding that really helpful. It's obviously free. And so it's a lot about, you know, we had a, a, a lot of views on our um, our GAT preparation videos and things like that. So that's mm-hmm. where where we can be found there. And, and uh, teachers that might be listening, uh, we're on Facebook and Instagram, the.englishlab on Instagram and also our website, englishlab.com.au. So around all of those things, we have lots of videos and lots of resources for teachers. So, and thank you very much for having me. I've really, uh, really enjoyed jumping back in and talking about VCE and, and uh, you know, hopefully it can help, uh, help, help a bunch of students. Pleasure. All right, I'll put all that in the show notes as well. And stay tuned. There will be a second episode coming primarily for teachers Thanks so much, Ben. Thanks, Laura. Appreciate it.